disappear. This creation of art and beauty and industry will perish from sight. But who can tell the new thoughts that have been awakened, the ambition fired, and the high achievements that will be wrought through this exposition? The eyes of the world were on Buffalo as it hosted the Pan American Exposition in the summer of 1901. The Pan Am was a world's fair held between May and November. Its goal was to celebrate the achievements of the Western Hemisphere and foster better relations between the nations of North, South, and Central America. It celebrated industrial, cultural, and technological progress, the centerpiece of which being the large-scale use of electricity to illuminate its buildings each night. Over 350 acres of land between Elmwood and Delaware Avenues had been transformed into a resplendent complex of ornate buildings, pavilions, exhibits, and attractions. The fair was a glorious spectacle by day, and by night, its quarter million light bulbs brilliantly lit the landscape. Over its six-month run, an estimated eight million guests traveled from all over the world to visit. And for many, it was their first time seeing the spectacle of electricity. While the exposition is a topic worthy of several podcasts in its own right, it served as the backdrop for an unexpected tragedy, the assassination of a president. William McKinley had planned to attend the opening of the exposition in May as part of a longer nationwide tour. But his wife, Ida, who was a fairly frail woman to begin with, became sick while on the trip. It was feared she was dying, so the tour was cut short and they returned to Washington. McKinley sent his vice president, former governor of New York and the hero of the Spanish-American War, Theodore Roosevelt, in his place. Given the magnitude of the fair and the fact that he generally enjoyed expositions to begin with, McKinley rescheduled his visit for the fall. On September 4, 1901, the president's train was met in Dunkirk by a welcoming party of local dignitaries, including John Milburn, who was president of the Pan American Exposition Company, and John Scatchard, chairman of the executive committee who boarded the train and accompanied the president the rest of the way to Buffalo. The city was decked out in its finest to welcome the president. American flags and patriotic bunting could be seen all across the city and church bells rang out in a presidential welcome. 
while often overlooked by history, it's important to mention that in 1901, McKinley was an enormously popular president. As an Ohio congressman, McKinley became one of the most vocal advocates for the protective tariff. And while serving as the governor of Ohio, he earned a reputation for balancing the interests of both business and labor. In 1896, he was elected president, and in his first term, the nation saw rapid economic growth. After guiding the U.S. to victory in the Spanish-American War in 1898, McKinley's popularity soared, and with the war's hero, Theodore Roosevelt, as his running mate, he easily won re-election in 1900. Now, after arriving in Buffalo, McKinley and his entourage which was comprised of his wife, Ida, his nieces, his personal physician, private secretary, stenographers, two messengers, a maid, and a nurse, were all taken to the Milburn residence on Delaware Avenue where they'd be staying. The following day, September 5th, was celebrated as President's Day at the exposition. Over 116,000 people attended the fair, making it the busiest day by more than 10,000 visitors. McKinley began the day by addressing the crowd on the fair's triumphal bridge. He spoke about tariffs, commercial expansion, the purposes of the Spanish-American War, and of course, expositions, which he famously called the timekeepers of progress. He attended several engagements throughout the day, including lunch at the New York State Pavilion, which is now the home of the Buffalo History Museum. Early on the morning of the 6th, McKinley traveled to Niagara Falls to take in the scenery and view the power station providing electricity for the fair. The guestbook register from the station, which is now at the Buffalo History Museum, bears what is quite possibly the last signature the president ever penned. By 3.30, McKinley was back at the Pan Am Rail Station for his next engagement, and thousands of people were already standing in line outside the Temple of Music, hoping they might have the opportunity to shake hands with him. Some accounts report that McKinley could shake hands at a furious pace, as many as 50 hands per minute, and that he prided himself on this ability. Interestingly, this public event was removed from McKinley's itinerary twice due to concerns about the president's safety. Let's keep in mind that in 1901, two presidents had been assassinated in the previous 36 years, and King Umberto of Italy had also been killed in 1900. That being said, McKinley insisted that the receiving line take place. He, in fact, told his personal secretary, George Cordelieu, no one would wish to hurt me. After discussing it, Cordelieu and McKinley came to a compromise. The reception would happen, but it would be exactly 10 minutes long and additional security would be present. As fate would have it, that extra security might have actually compromised the Secret Service's ability to scan the crowd properly. We, of course, know that one of the people in line was a 28-year-old man named Leon Sholgosh, 
though while staying in Buffalo, he used the alias Fred Niemann, translating to Fred Nobody in German. Originally from Michigan, Sholgosh was a laborer who spent time working in Cleveland and who aligned himself with anarchist principles. A few people ahead of Sholgosh was a young girl named Myrtle Ledger, who liked the carnation McKinley wore in his lapel for good luck, which, as a kind gesture, he took off and gave to her. Interestingly, directly in front of Sholgosh was a man that caught the attention of all the guards. They thought he looked, quote, shifty and suspicious, and many had their eyes on him. Behind him, Sholgosh had the gun concealed under a handkerchief. We know the Secret Service wasn't strictly enforcing an empty hands policy that day because a man with a bandaged hand had already been through. Also, it was a hot day and lots of people were carrying them, so it was not quite as suspicious as it may sound to our ears. Now, after the questionable character shook hands with the president, the guards breathed a sigh of relief. At that moment, the organist reportedly had played the highest note in Bach's Sonata in F and had paused to let the notes reverberate when two shots rang out. Sholgosh had approached the president and fired two shots from his 32 caliber Ivor Johnson revolver. The first shot ricocheted off one of McKinley's buttons, and the second went into his abdomen. Behind Sholgosh was an African-American man named James Parker, who was employed as a server at an exposition restaurant. After the second shot rang out, Parker punched Sholgosh in the back of the neck and tackled him to the ground at which point other guards and agents piled on and began to beat the shooter. McKinley then magnanimously directed them to go easy on his attacker, and Sholgosh was dragged into a small room behind the stage. There, he was locked in with agents to both interrogate him as well as to keep him from the angry mob which was forming outside. The president needed immediate medical attention and was taken to the hospital on the Pan Am grounds. Now, like all the buildings at the exposition, the hospital was a temporary structure, ill-equipped and able to handle only the most routine medical emergencies. It was effectively a glorified first aid station. Ironically, in a World's Fair celebrating the new technology of electricity, there were no electric lights at the hospital. In fact, one of the attending physicians was forced to use a mirror to redirect sunlight toward where they were operating on McKinley from a window. Only toward the end of the operation did they actually succeed in rigging up an electric light. The doctor selected to do the surgery was Dr. Matthew Mann. Mann was an extremely accomplished local physician who served as 
professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Buffalo. He had previously served as president of the American Gynecological Society and as president of the Buffalo Academy of Medicine. And while Dr. Mann was a well-established, very talented and able doctor, he was a gynecologist. Now, one of the nation's best trauma surgeons was Buffalo's own Dr. Roswell Park. Dr. Park had traveled throughout Europe studying the most modern medical practices, and upon his return to the U.S., he educated others on these practices, most notably the importance of sterilization during surgery. At the time of the shooting, Park was already performing surgery on a man in Niagara Falls. The legend, as told by Dr. Park's son, was that during the operation, a man burst into the room and told Dr. Park that he was desperately needed in Buffalo. Park allegedly then looked up from the patient and said, can't you see that I'm not able to come, even if it were for the president himself? Park was eventually brought back to Buffalo on a special train, but by the time he arrived, the surgery was mostly complete. Sholgosh's bullet had punctured McKinley's stomach, and despite the doctor's best efforts, it couldn't be located or removed. Again, ironically, one of the other technological innovations on display at the fair was the x-ray machine. However, as none of the doctors had any experience with it, Dr. Mann chose not to use it, claiming that the machine would have been little use to the president and may have actually disturbed him further. McKinley survived the surgery and was taken by electric ambulance to the Milburn residence to recuperate. The doctors considered his condition to be critical, and he was monitored around the clock. As his status was already so uncertain, it was universally agreed that any attempt to transport the president back to D.C. would be disastrous, and that instead he should remain in Buffalo. Minutes after the shooting, word spread to Washington through the Associated Press that the president had been shot. But official word wasn't issued until three hours after the shooting. Vice President Roosevelt, who was in Vermont attending the Vermont Fish and Game League banquet, first received word about the shooting at 5.30 p.m., almost an hour and a half after it happened. But the report was unconfirmed and its information incomplete. Once the information was confirmed, and given the serious nature of the president's injuries, Roosevelt hurried to Buffalo where he was met by his friend and local lawyer, Ansley Wilcox, with whom he had previously worked to create the Niagara Reservation in 1885. Wilcox offered his home to Roosevelt, and from September 7th to September 10th, the vice president made the residence his headquarters while he was staying in Buffalo. A telegraph machine was installed in the Wilcox house for Roosevelt's use, and the location became a hub of activity.
Like Roosevelt, members of McKinley's cabinet slowly began to receive information about the shooting and subsequent operation. Over the following days, the cabinet, members of Congress, governors, and other officials made their way to Buffalo to be at the president's bedside. The local newspapers referred to Buffalo as the, quote, seat of government, with many of the Delaware Avenue buildings playing host to prominent figures. The Buffalo Club in particular became the meeting place for the cabinet, with at least two cabinet members, John Hay and Philander Knox, staying there as guests. Senator Mark Hanna, a close friend of McKinley, requested updates on the president's condition be delivered to the club in 15-minute intervals. This allowed the cabinet to be amongst the first to know his condition while respecting the doctor's requests for peace and quiet at McKinley's bedside. In the subsequent days, Roosevelt made regular visits to the Milburn residence where McKinley seemed to be recovering. Along with the president's cabinet, Roosevelt monitored McKinley's progress carefully. Initial reports were positive and suggested that the danger had passed. Despite the initially positive prognosis, Roosevelt was extremely aware of the optics of the situation. Though the cabinet was meeting regularly only a few blocks from where he was staying, he refrained from attending these meetings. He was concerned it would give the appearance of attempting to take over in McKinley's absence. Instead, he held informal lunches, during which cabinet members would keep him apprised of the conversations that were occurring. On September 10th, when President McKinley's recovery seemed likely, it was agreed that Roosevelt should leave Buffalo to demonstrate confidence in McKinley's recovery and help raise the nation's spirits. He left to join his family on holiday in New York's Adirondack Mountains, but left an itinerary and contact information with Wilcox should the president's condition change. Three days later, on September 13th, McKinley's condition did change. Though he had seemed to be improving, gangrene was growing inside of him and the infection was passing into his blood. His condition only worsened throughout the day, drifting in and out of consciousness. The First Lady mourned at his bedside, as did Senator Hanna and others. And at 2.15 a.m., the president passed away. Witnesses recount that McKinley's final words were of his favorite hymn, Nearer My God to Thee. We'll pick up this story next episode with the aftermath of McKinley's death and the inauguration of Vice President Theodore Roosevelt. The Buffalo History Museum receives operating support from Erie County, the City of Buffalo, the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Andrew M. Cuomo, and the New York State Legislature. Additional support is provided by m and Bank and from our donors, members, and friends. Today's story was researched and written by Lindsay Visser and produced with the help of our staff. My name's Anthony Greco, and we'll be back in two weeks with the second part of the story. 
So until then, take care. <laughs>